Welcome back to one-on-one. -on -one. As you know, the format is very simple. It's one special guest and one heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Nicole Rollet, who's the principal of Chien Bleu and the CEO of La Verrière. Thank you for kindly accepting my invitation. Good afternoon. What a treat to be back with you, Antoine. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for being on one-on-one -on -one today. So this is the story of a princess who found herself cast into a region where there were no castles, no court, and a place full of peasants. I may be exaggerating a little bit on the princess side, but the region could be called the end of the world. And my manners forces me to stay polite. Mind you, there's nothing wrong with the end of the world. Actually, some people are seeking it. Well, then again, you know, love can be very persuasive. Sometimes you jump before you think about it. I can almost picture the scene. Honey, this is our new home, says her husband, showing her a decrepit old house in the middle of nowhere in the south of France. Oh, sorry, gotta go, have a meeting in London, bye. Living a known life, you could say her comfort zone, she went into the unknown and sometimes obscure world of my wine making. Now, drinking wine is the easy part. Making it and selling it are the hard parts. And if you add creating a world-class wine to the equation, it gets even harder. But our princess, full of beautiful stories she read in her childhood and youth, driven by love and passion, determined to make it work, threw all her efforts into the Herculean task. She could handle the highest powers and most influential people in the world. That was her former life. It's not a few vines that will deter her. And so she did. Not alone, mind you, okay? She knows how to get people on her side. Her agenda looks like that of a head of state, but what she does, in my opinion, is more important than what a head of state does. And after a few years, she's producing a fine wine, recognized as such by experts worldwide, fighting to support underappreciated grapes, supporting women in the world of wine, and co-creating a think tank to ensure the future of fine wines. The princess has become the queen of her castle. Within the backdrop, a beautiful blue oak, Chien Bleu, the name of the winery. Nicole Rollet, it is a privilege and honor to welcome you. Wow, goodness, my, my dear Antoine, this is the most uh, creative and <laughs> amusing introduction I've ever received. <laughs> Hats off to you for uh, your poetic flair. Okay. I feel far from being a princess. I feel more like Cinderella on most days of the week. And uh, <laughs> luckily, the uh, the so-called uh, peasants are actually incredibly inspirational uh, people who have taught me to love and, and understand the value of the land, of looking after it, of being a guardian of it, and of putting all their efforts towards turning things around and making them as good as they can be. Yeah. So I have uh, had great masters in this process and I feel very fortunate to have happened upon this incredibly interesting microcosm and also this wonderful group of people who have uh, helped and, uh, and worked tirelessly to help make Chen Bleu what it is today. Yeah, but as, you, as you're mentioning, very often, and I took some liberties in the introduction, uh, <laughs> but very often people have some uh, stereotypes about things because they grew up in a certain way, they went in certain circles of the world, 
and and their life is 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 in one place and then when they're exposed to something else they may have some some ideas so to start i would like to um, revisit a bit the early years the formative years and the first question that came to my mind is because in what you're working right now is how important was food and wine uh, when you grew up i was so lucky i think as you get to a certain age and you think back on what made you who you are i just happened into the right family. Uh, my mother was brilliant and a, a wonderful writer, journalist, um, eventually food critic. And she also loved to cook herself and was a, a very accomplished chef. So we ate very, very well at home. It was her laboratory. It was her sanctuary. And it was her creative um, uh, workshop as well. So we were her guinea pigs, which was wonderful. <laughs> and then when we weren't having these extravagantly interesting meals at home, she was traveling the world to explore the, the finest tables and dragging us along with her. So that was already fortunate. We were like a Asterix and the Potion Magique in the magic potion that you, you fall into it when you're very young and uh, it gives you a big head start in life. The second thing that happened was um, that my father was very passionate about wine, very knowledgeable uh, connoisseur in that gentlemanly way that is um, uh, somewhat uh, archaic now, since so many new people have taken interest in the wine world. He had a little uh, collection and together they would go to some of these auctions at the big houses and bring back ex extravagant bottles and share them with um, equally enophile friends. So I actually have a photo from my first birthday party. I was at the head of the table with a little uh, party hat on and my parents had opened some very good bottles and uh, my mother had made a special meal to pair with them. And they were all having a very, very good time and being extremely unruly. And I was looking at them all incredulous and scornful thinking, when will these adults start behaving properly? So <laughs> did you have a glass of wine that, that, that evening, that day? <laughs> nothing, nothing at that young age, but uh, they- Not did even the finger in the glass, no? Not not quite yet, but I did appreciate uh, appreciate food and wine from an early age, and um, I remember early on being uh, having figured out that if I behaved very very well, my parents would take me along with them to these fancy restaurants, and I would get to spend more time with them, which was always a priority for me, even as a child, because they were both very busy with their careers. So I, I got to go to a number of Michelin-starred restaurants. Um, Japanese restaurants sitting on the ground, uh, all these things that uh, are quite unusual for uh, a child just because it was their passion. So I was lucky to have grown up with that, with that palette. Uh, but never in a million years did I expect that later on I'd go to the other side of the barrier and actually be uh, making these things. You know, you can appreciate watches or shoes or whatever that doesn't mean you want to make them so uh yeah. do you remember that, your first glass of wine you know we moved to italy when i was eight and as you're well aware uh italians have a tradition still today of always having wine with their meals and never having wine between the meals, uh, which is probably their saving grace. And in fact, even in high school, it was very much looked down on 
to be drinking between meals or to be drunk in any way. Uh, there was a lot of stigma associated with drunkenness and there was a lot of um, prestige associated with appreciating wine. So uh, it was part of our landscape always. And I enjoyed it with, with friends as well because there are no really enforced drinking ages. And at parties, we would often have fine wine. Uh, so it's hard to remember the first one, but no, it was the, remember the one that really left you with a fantastic impression because wine is, is everyone says wine is about emotions. Do you remember a particular time where you had that, that glass of wine and was just like, wow. Absolutely not. I do remember <laughs> after I studied wine officially in order okay. to make this big transition in my life in, in mid career, uh, then I started paying a lot more attention and having these uh, aha moments or, or extremely uh, enjoyable times. I remember once at the 21 Club with my wonderful uh, business partner, Laura Iverson, uh, we had gone out with someone from the trade and uh, treated ourselves to a Clos Saint-Denis. Uh, it was, it was uh, just one of those magical moments. And that is probably where my love of Burgundy uh, came into focus and okay. became a side passion of mine. But uh, I would say that um, in general, uh, since then, there have been so many. But for me, having the theoretical knowledge and the study has really accentuated and and turbocharged my appreciation of wine. And I would certainly recommend to anyone to invest in at least a WCT level two level course. It's only about two and a half days and it can really be transformational uh, even for enthusiasts uh, to, 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 to make the time and really become more knowledgeable about the framework of understanding and appreciating fine wine. Come back to the fine one afterwards. So you had a very cherished uh, childhood uh, exposed to uh, uh, wines and, and, and good food. Uh, you went to Vassar. Now, for, for the small anecdote, Anthony Bourdain went to Vassar. He didn't graduate from there. So for all the, the, the people in gastronomy, uh, Vassar is the center of the world. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> We're also dangerously close to the CIA, yeah. and the Culinary Institute of America. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they're uh, only about uh, half an hour away from the Vassar campus. Yes. So there are some close ties, and that's often where parents will take uh, children when they are coming for important graduation things, et cetera. Yeah. So, uh, so, so the food and wine continued continued there and I was lucky because even though my parents were not particularly well off they were double income no kids for a long time uh, in an era when that wasn't so common and so they did have more disposable income than a lot of other people uh, in their station in life and they spent it all on that we would even go in our summer holidays to these fabulous trips because they would they were also bridge champions. So they would put money aside in a kitty with their friends and then go spend it in restaurants, um, eating our way across the Loire Valley or the north of Spain or uh, and planning all our trips around the Michelin Guide. Okay. Really Epicureans. <laughs> really Epicureans. So you, you went to Versailles, you went to university. How did you picture your, your life when you graduated? I was sure that I would go into international affairs. I 
spoke a number of languages, had lived in a number of countries, was very uh, polycultural and considered that the logical use of my talents would be in areas such as diplomacy or um, NGOs, uh, some aspect of uh, foreign affairs, and uh, never for a million years imagined myself far removed from world capitals where big decisions of politics or or economics or business were taking place. So uh, I did. Getting, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> so so you went into this this uh, this world of international affairs, uh, investment banking, think tanks, etc. What did you learn from your this first career before moving on to the next one? Uh, as a woman and as a professional, what was the important takeaways that you got before embarking in that next stage of your career? I think that uh, I was very aware of how the greater framework is so important to guiding our lives and setting the agenda for for what we are able or not to do, and that leaning in on those issues was very important and that one could affect change by bringing the right people together with the right ideas. And I think working in the think tank for David Rockefeller, the Council of the Americas, hosting study groups, bringing inspirational leaders, um, that was very exciting to see the little intersection between people and ideas and how uh, some problems that most people, man on the street, consider way outside their ability to affect can actually um, be challenged and be uh, maybe not fully resolved, but certainly improved uh, by engaging with them in the right way, in the right forum. So that was a big epiphany for me because you start off after school feeling very small and helpless in the bigger uh, in the bigger scheme of things, or maybe you just never question that framework. And uh, working in the international sphere made it more possible to feel that even individuals could affect change. And were you able to? Were you able to affect change when you were in in those circles in that work? I think the work we did at the Council of the Americas was extremely important in setting the agenda. There was a little bit of lobbying involved that wasn't the main purpose of the organization, but we did, for example, weigh in quite a bit uh, in Washington with NAFTA and some of the big treaties that were being put in place. And we were considered, like many think tanks, very well informed and generally impartial, and therefore our opinion was sought out. And Uh, people trusted that forum as being committed to the greater good. So uh, I think those are some of the things that inspired the think tanks that we set up in the wine world and and set the, the framework for, for that. So uh, yes, I think that we did our part to, to help the advancement of at least hemispheric relations. And as a woman in, in those high affairs, international high affairs, was it complicated, difficult, simple, Because we'll talk about women in the world of wine afterwards, just to try to draw a bit of a parallel. I have some thoughts on that that are also based on some readings that I've done um, since then as well, as I try to, to help young people, especially young women, not because 
I prefer to help young women, but they seem to be more solicitous of help, especially in their late 20s. I think at parity of education, a lot of women start off with very similar opportunities as, as men and, and focus as men in many countries and ambitions, all of that. You could say that coming out of certain kinds of schools with a certain education, they all take off on the first 10 years of their career with, with very comparable aspirations and abilities. Um, I'd say that the tricky part for many young women, and I was one of them, is uh, towards their later 20s. And that's when the either or decisions become more challenging and it's much harder to have your cake and eat it too, whether it's um, reconciling career and personal priorities, maybe starting a family, um, deciding, having developed your own value systems in parallel to the ones that are brought forth by the workplace, you get into your first big uh, challenges and you have to find a way to navigate a, a, a complicated landscape. So I'd say that I was entering that period with more apprehension than perhaps a lot of young men with equal qualifications. And I think that would be probably something you could generalize for a lot of young women. Um, and that's where everybody solves for that phase differently. Um, so for me, when I first finished um, at the think tank and I went over to investment banking, I was really looking forward to some financial security and nest egg building and things that come to come home to roost uh, as you get a little bit older whereas their 20s are often about experience mm -hmm. and idealism and and it's 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 a hard age for for many people i would say so you done the high level Uh, work experience and then something happened and that completely changed your life absolutely without going too much into the details but uh, something happened and, and, and you changed <laughs> life, career. my personal life all over the place uh, <laughs> no 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 but just just about you know there was a big shift between what you used to do before and what you're doing now so something happened in there And it wasn't, it wasn't expected. Uh, it wasn't planned. It wasn't expected. Can you briefly, without going into too much details? <laughs> My husband is a very private man. So, uh, um, but I, I do believe that, I mean, he certainly rocked my world. Um, I was always sort of shy and intellectual. And even though In my 20s, I learned to overcome a lot of that uh, in terms of presenting myself to the world and, you know, introducing CEOs and ministers and, you know, people who were changing agendas in Latin America and having to be in front of the camera. Uh, my real nature was more um, on the research side and uh, more behind the camera. And... My husband, uh, Xavier, is really extraordinary, an extraordinarily interesting person. And he was very full of exciting hopes and dreams <laughs> when I met him. Uh, he was living in Europe and I was in New York. And we 
started to, to date long distance, which lasted about three and a half, almost four years before we, we married. And he was, even from our first date, telling me about this crazy project that he had just committed to in the south of France. Uh, he had always wished to to have a vineyard since some of his family uh, was uh, from the famous Domaine Rollet and the Jura. So there was and full disclosure from the beginning. It was full disclosure. In fact, it was almost like a prospectus and <laughs> 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 a roadshow. <laughs> um, I, I'll never forget just how full disclosure uh, he was because it was uh, in Manhattan where a lot of men were very much like, how shall we put it mildly, uh, Hummingbirds, shall we say, okay. uh, <laughs> jumping from flower to flower, okay. <laughs> and uh, rarely um, paying the specific attention to the person they were with because they were too busy looking at their watch to figure out the other three dates that they had packed into yes. the evening. And so uh, Xavier was was the opposite, and um, he was very clear about the commitment that he had to his very young daughters um, and, and uh, how important they were to him. And I thought that was fantastic and that he didn't downplay that and what it meant to him. And I also was fascinated by this project where I thought he was in some way foolhardy to be entertaining the thought of a young lady based in New York with no background in <laughs> in agriculture to embark on this big turnaround project of a historic vineyard in the middle of nowhere in the Ventoux with nothing but um, a, an abandoned vineyard and uh, an ancient priory that was covered with ivy and sort of a pile of rubble. And it was going to take him <laughs> at least 15 years even to make just the the house operational and another you know or in parallel another 15 years to turn around the vineyard so I was very much a fish out of water but I was fascinated with his thinking process and his knowledge and I offered once things became serious to support him in his endeavors uh, he had decided to leave the financial world at that point which is quite ironic in hindsight since he went on to do it there uh, and I thought I was marrying a farmer uh, that I would be the breadwinner in finance or uh, other areas and uh, he would be able to fully explore this uh, passion of his And I never in a million years imagined that I would end up becoming a crazy passionate wine person in our relationship. Uh, we were extremely fortunate to be joined by Benedict, his sixth sister, and Jean-Louis, his uh, brother-in-law, uh, because they brought a lot of experience and, and uh, knowledge to the project. So the four of us embarked on this thing but I initially said listen since I don't know anything about winemaking why don't I try to push forth on the restoration of the property while you take control of the vineyard and um, in the process of that I learned a lot just from being around them but still didn't see how I could add my value 
and then a number of things would change. It began with my husband signing me up for a wine tasting uh, course at in London uh, at a place called, which is now Jeroboam's, which used to be La Reserve. And I took to that like a duck to water, eventually ended up at the WSCT, which again, I loved because all that formal study uh, really played to some of my nerdy strengths. Yes. And I liked doing well at it. It gave me a lot of confidence, like a lot of women, especially young women. I, I lacked the confidence, as you've heard, I'm sure, from many women. We have a tendency that if we know, say, 70% of something, we're very preoccupied with the 30 or 40% that we don't know. Uh, and that's a very female characteristic to make big generalizations. Whereas I don't think typically the men will, will be stopped by that. They'll be more confident to just build on what they already know and feel confident um, about it. So it took not so sure about this one. To, <laughs> Okay, I they hope, I hope that's it. true. That's just what I've heard. They, they, they may okay, hide it. you may hide it. You know, their ego is That's so, interesting. You know, they often say that in the context of applying for jobs, if there's if there are 10 qualifications listed and the man has seven or eight, eight of them, the ones he doesn't have won't dissuade him from applying. Mm. And they say that for women, uh, okay. they'll be they'll walk away from the things that they don't know well. Okay. And again, okay. those are big generalizations and right. I can't speak for the opposite sex, <laughs> but in my case, I was, um, I was very preoccupied with, with what I didn't know. And that study really filled in the blanks and made me ready to take the plunge and get more involved. And, so so um, you were nudged in basically in, in this, uh, in this huge task in this huge project. And, And what is striking about the project is it's not just winemaking, it's fine winemaking. And, and this is a big difference. Now, for those who don't know about it, can you, and I know it's very complicated to, to, to say, but can you define what fine wine is? I have been very preoccupied with this subject for a long time, <laughs> and it is hard to summarize it. And uh, I think the work we've done with with Arani, one of the projects is the Define Fine Wine project. In fact, I'd always like to hear from anyone who wants to throw their definition into the pot, because I feel that between all of us who are passionate about these subjects, we should be able to create a sort of a hologram of what fine wine means to uh, our civilization. And uh, in, in my personal definition, I would use some of the things that people like Hugh Johnson have said, which are so concise, like a fine wine is something, is a wine worth talking about. The implication of that being that it has complexity, it has nuance, it has intent, it has um, a combination of objective and subjective merits. And so for me, what went off in my head and allowed me to quickly leapfrog into appreciating fine wine was bringing knowledge and an understanding from the art world. Uh, I don't have your same uh, knowledge of, of music. I know you're very musical and have uh, a lot of in that area, uh, but I have quite, a, uh, quite an involvement with the visual world and, and the art world in particular. And so I've also run a book club for, for 10 years and literature helped me as well. So the 
the appreciation that I had from the art world was understanding composition, uh, intent, use of the medium and the, the choice of the subject matter, all these things that contribute to a whole being greater than the sum of the parts uh, so that you can analyze it, but you will, it will have to be a gift that keeps giving. So your first appreciation of a, of a painting or of a bottle of wine has to quickly tell the story of what the artist is intending to do. But as you get more knowledgeable, you bring back to it and, and appreciating things that you might have missed the first time around in the composition, in the stories, you know. So I like to think of it, for example, if you have a, a painting by, I don't know, Raphael da Vinci, you will notice the subject very quickly. Oh, here's Christ coming off the cross or something. And then you'll go into the supporting cast and you'll understand that that must be Mary Magdalene or this or that. And then you'll go deeper and you'll start noticing little vignettes in the shadows and interpreting those. And to do that, you'll need to read a bit about what's going on in his life, or uh, you'll understand that maybe that was actually uh, one of his patrons that didn't pay him. And so you see someone, you know, being stabbed to death or something like that. <laughs> so you, you understand the metaphor, you understand the composition, you understand the, the sequencing, uh, the, the deliberate sequencing by the painter, uh, you appreciate the medium and, and his, his workmanship. And so for me, a fine wine is one that it has all those nuances. So when you first approach it, you, you get a story of where it's from, what fruit is involved, what the blend might be, but then you can keep coming back to it and noticing more and more aspects that you might have missed the first time. And for me, the ultimate goal in making fine wine was to have things with those different layers of reed and I enjoy so much myself the wines that are constantly taking you deeper into their reason for being and then also evolving with time and 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 giving you that experience just like when you read a, a book and you can reread Shakespeare or Proust or whoever a uh, hundred times and every time put a different filter on it and pull out of it something that you hadn't caught the first time and that's that's for me what a fine wine is. It's a very interesting parallel you've done with, with, with painting and, and literature. So there's a very personal approach to that as well. It's, it's what you see, what you feel, the emotion that that painting, that book, that glass of wine is giving you that can define also what fine wine is. It, it brings you to that stage, to that state in which your senses are completely alert and you are engaging very much with the... Uh, with a piece of art, whether it's a book, a painting, or music, or, or, or wine. Personally, really excited when I have the thinking part coming together with the emotions and with the sensorial. And that trifecta is really what excites me in wines that I drink, but also motivates me in the ones that we make. So to come back now to the, the wines that you make, there's a there's a very specific philosophy behind Chen Bleu. And there's been a lot of thoughts put into, into it, not just in the way it's made, but in the way it is projected, the way it's been talked about, 
the way it's been marketed. Uh, can you tell us more about what that what that philosophy is? It's hard to summarize. I think some people have referred to these wines as like a thinking person's wine in the sense that there is so much thought that's gone into them and it tends to be a bit of a universal language with the people who appreciate them as well. The attention to detail tends to be something that other people who have attention to detail in their lives notice in our work and uh, and people who think deeply about what they do tend to appreciate what we do. Um, and so the, the deliberateness with which we've approached exploration of the vineyard, the care we've put into establishing what we hope is a, a sustainable and harmonious relationship between the vineyard and the surrounding environment, between the vineyard and the work that we're doing on the human level, between our uh, our own uh, relationships uh, and the the trade and the clients, you know, having these very sustainable things from the start on a very solid foundation, even though it took us forever to create that foundation, ends to our universe other people who appreciate things that are built to last and that are done with that sense of purpose because often they have that as well, or maybe they missing that and are coming to us to find them. So we're in a bit of a category of our own because we haven't really pursued the definition of fine wine around pedigree or around longevity of you know generations doing the same thing the same way the whole time or some of that narrative that's very common to the fine wine world. On the other hand, the approach we've taken with the land, the thoughtfulness that we've uh, engaged with in terms of all the sources to protect and preserve that land from the microbiology upward um, and the care we've put into making it very historically accurate, but also bringing in ultra comforts and the best practice service and all that stuff from the more international culture of best of and making choices at each turn about which aspects of tradition, which aspects of very contemporary ways of thinking uh, which aspects of local things, which aspects of international things, uh, always trying to find that sweet spot that makes sense for us um, where we are and what we're trying to do. So even more than the location, the grapes we're working with, the style of the wines, what I believe people come to us for or with expectations about is that when we do something, we will have put a tremendous amount of thought and care into why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And they, I hope, are coming along for that ride and that adventure, uh, counting on us for um, not taking shortcuts and always being very truthful in what we uh, present to them as our creations and as our experience. How would you see people drinking your wine? How do you see them? Is it uh, by the fireside in the evening, just with a glass of wine? Is it with a great meal with friends for lunch? Is it for fun? How do you how do you picture yourself 
people drinking the wines of Chambleu. I love to think that even when they're drinking them in a distracted situation to celebrate something with people, etc. For example, the rosé that we make uh, is a very happy, celebratory experience. It's not one of these rosés that's so serious that it's lost its fruit, its freshness, its brightness, its, its cheerfulness. But as soon as we've delivered on the, the pleasure upfront, if you think of the aromatic curve of the wine, I'd like to always think that right after that beautiful first impression, there's this whole baggage, a bit like with an iceberg, of other things that are going to come through. You're going to start noticing nuances. You're going to notice the length. You're going to notice the structure, the balance, the um, the experience with the bottle, the packaging, the the label. You'll go deeper and deeper so that okay. if you take a pause in the conversation and you try that rosé and suddenly, oh, what a nice finish. Oh, look at that. It has a lot of uh, complexity, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, it goes so well with my food. So that it, it has a long tail. And that is very much the picture that we have in mind when we create these wines. So that even with the, uh, the flagships like Abelard, Eloise, Alio, which are the two reds and the white uh, the flagships that we make, uh, even though they're very much intended to be conversation piece wines for people who know a lot and care a lot about a full fine wine experience, the first impression, the first um, experience with them still has to be charming and, and um, flirtatious to some extreme. And okay. then you put in the gravitas. So not just a pretty face, and not just something that's so serious that you forget the pleasure element. Okay. Who has decided on the, uh, the taste profile of the wine? The vineyard. <laughs> um, we have a very, we have a vineyard with a very strong personality. Um, it's like a parent that has raised several children. They'll often discover that with some children, there's no room for imposing one's style or values or, 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 or way of operating, those children will come with a strong imprint of character. And your best job as a parent is to try to mold that into something that makes sense um, for them and for you. Yes. Um, our vineyard being high altitude, old vines, very gnarly, very full of personality. Each one is like its own little warrior, having survived in very difficult conditions, um, both climactic, geological, and uh, lack of uh, attention. <laughs> um, they each have their own story to tell. They have tiny yields very thick skins uh, packed with phenolics coming from the fact that we have at altitude so many different winds that dry out the berries. So it's, it's really about shaping what the vineyard gives and working with that tannic structure 
and adapting it, keeping the expressivity, but bringing down the rusticity, bringing down the full-on concentration and, and modulating that. And so uh, it's a very different kind of work than in a region where the grapes are more um, standard and what your challenge is to give them something interesting to say or a place like uh, a cooler climate like the Loire Valley where it's about coaxing out uh, what is in there so uh, we uh, for example we all all four of us uh, in our original family team uh, love Chateau Rayas and we would love to make wine like Chateau Rayas with the translucency. I mean, I told you I love Burgundy, you know, but this is not the right vineyard for that. This is a vineyard that has a very strong personality. So we bring down that intensity of concentration by choosing to harvest a bit earlier, by uh, changing the blends to modulate a little bit uh, some of that tannic structure, et cetera, et cetera. So we have less say over what the grapes say than we would in a different vineyard. But on the other hand, it's very exciting to have all those phenolic compounds to work with. Nice. So it's, it's basically the wine is made on the vine and then you try to express it as, as best as possible. A hundred percent. And, and that's uh, easy to say, uh, charming to say, but hard to do in practice and very, very much a characteristic of our vineyard. And one of the many reasons why it had fallen into disrepair because for centuries, the monks and the Templars and the people who were, uh, in the in you know appreciating these high altitude properties with these tiny yields in the foothills of the Mont Ventoux um, were drawn to vineyards that had a lot of natural ex expression because their winemaking techniques were very rustic and then in the second part of the 20th century with the advent of chemicals, of mechanization, the arrival of cooperatives, the arrival of markets and standardization and appellations and all these things, there was this real paradigm shift where the emphasis was on things that were pursuing, you know, typical styles and homogeneous styles and easy to Uh, bring down the production costs with the use of all these new techniques um, and no compensation from the marketplace on originality of expression. So suddenly all these high altitude vineyards were abandoned. People moved to the valley below and there they bumped up yields so much that the Appalachians had to put in laws to cap the yields um, In our area, at 65 hectoliters per hectare, in Chateauneuf, at 35. But to give you an idea, our yields are somewhere between 14 and 28 hectoliters okay. per hectare, so extremely low. depending yeah. on the yield. So by definition, these suddenly overnight became undesirable. And then either they were completely abandoned uh, or you know, sold off for pittance while people moved to the valley, or if the farmers were a bit more wealthy, they often kept the high altitude properties and purchased in the valley. Okay. 
And then some people have been known to use the um, beta between the high yields and the low yields to balance out overproduction in the valley floor by using the surfaces of the high okay. altitude and doing a weighted average uh, in order to comply with the regulations. Should, so okay. uh, in the last 10 years, I'd say, there's a real rediscovery of the value of these micro terroirs, especially at altitude with the global warming. And so suddenly, almost overnight, the paradigm is shifting back where suddenly the Ventoux, which has the altitude, which the valley floor doesn't have, uh, and average temperatures that are cooler than other places, uh, is finding itself uh, back in favor. And the biology and, and biodiversity that comes from being part of the UNESCO biosphere where we, where we are and where you know, is, is fairly big biosphere, is also suddenly a badge of honor in wine circles in ways that had been poo-pooed when we had all those 30 or 40 years of chemical abuse uh, and glyphosate and all the things that you're familiar with. And so uh, it's quite interesting to see things <laughs> suddenly shifting back. And I would say that in our case, it's probably not a complete coincidence. Xavier was drawn to this property specifically because it was isolated. It had clean air, clean water, no neighbors putting a bunch of chemicals, a beautiful forest. He was a conservationist already since forever and was very aware of the value of having a very exciting environment around the vineyard uh, from the beginning. So he had the vision. He had the vision, he had the knowledge, and this was way before sustainable or sustainability was a, a fashionable hashtag. Uh, in fact, there were no hashtags back then um, for anything. So, uh, so it was definitely to his credit uh, to have been thinking ahead. And that is part of the, the things that he does very well. There's a program um, that is very important for you that is called Sustainability. Can you, can you tell us more about it? Glad you asked me about that, Antoine, because it is one of the cornerstones of how we manage our vineyard and also what we hope will be one of our legacies to the wine world if it um, unfolds the way it has been, which is um, by working sustainably, you want to take on, of course, the reduction of risks from chemicals and contributing carbon and global warming, et cetera. But there are always concerns about making your vineyard more vulnerable or increasing your costs, which in the case of many winemakers is not an, an option since our margins are generally so small. So after a lot of research, the natural forms of viticulture, regenerative viticulture that we applied to our vineyard when we started fixing it up, um, led us to really putting a spotlight on the role of bees in the vineyard. For example, many people dismiss the importance of bees in viticulture as opposed to say almond farms, et cetera, because they say that 
vines are self-pollinating, why do you need bees? But actually, studies have shown they can increase yields by up to 30%, which is wonderful and, of course, reduces the use and the expense of chemical fertilizers. But the really interesting part of our research project is to study how bringing in more bees can actually make better wine. And I'll define that as wine that has a greater sense of place, a purpose and originality of expression and a, a reflection of the terroir, which is such an important component in fine wine, which might not be the case in commercial wine. So the way the research exists today, all the pieces are already proven and we are hoping to string them together like a Brio train set. You bring in more bees, they increase the spread of cover crops. We know those are 90% cross-pollinating. They can't even spread without the bees, but if you have many bees, they spread faster and better. We all know cover crops increase the health and well-being of the vines, but also prevent soil erosion and reduce the risks from pests because the pests have more plants to land on and are li less likely to attack the vines if they have other species. We also know that the cover crops increase the housing for the microbiome and, and allow the spread of positive microbiomes and microorganisms and prevent the spread of the ones that are potentially detrimental. They also hold together these networks of mycelia, which of course now are becoming so important. Uh, everyone's understanding the role of fungi in creating the network of transmission underground uh, that's extremely helpful to having living soils and therefore healthy environment for your plants. But finally, the microbiome are also credited now with breaking down all the soils into nutrients for the plants, which of course is better for the plants, but also transmits the sense of place that historically was referred to as, for example, minerality. And they've realized that you're not actually tasting the minerals, you're tasting the byproduct from the transformation of the soils by the microbiome. And without them, you lose the transmission of that sense of place. So okay. when you kill your soils and bring in fertilizers, you no longer have this fantastic transmission of, uh, of, of sense of place. So normally when you have wines that are special and have a great sense of place, you get the rewards from the marketplace, mm -hmm. from the critics. And so you actually have addressed the costs, the revenues and the risks just by moving to this much more natural way of, of tending your soils, not to mention that you're saving bees and that you're helping the environment more generally. And you have honey. You have honey. <laughs> reduce your carbon footprint. If you, every way you look at this uh, is a win-win situation. So what is fascinating is that people have tried to change what nature has done so well for, for millions of years. And then they realize that 
they didn't do it well and they need to find new things to try to fix them up while they could look at what nature does. And sometimes the answer is lies there. So, And I think it's very helpful to bring a roadmap to all winemakers. I hope that this will be our contribution is to help people with a very pragmatic set of recommendations so that if and when they're, they're prepared to take the plunge and move away from their glyphosate, uh, that they will have the safety of knowing that they're going towards something that can be useful uh, and economical. That would be wonderful. I, I just want to go back one second on the, um, on the iconography of uh, Chambleu. Uh, because the design and the uh, and, and the way it, it's being done, um, I've I've never seen it anywhere. Uh, <laughs> this is something that is that is no. I think actually it's 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 very nice. To, it's actually it, it is very intriguing, and uh, and I know that the people that go on the website they would see a lot of hints uh, across the website with who is whom and who's the beekeeper and who's the okay. So there's a lot of these things. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why did I kill myself like that? For It took me forever to design that label. Uh, I think we had spent so much time and thought and care and money on turning things around. Uh, 12 years in total anonymity to restore that vineyard. I mean, who does that, right? And um, I felt that you're only as good as the weakest link in the chain. And the one thing you don't, think through or do properly ends up defining you and being a problem in terms of devaluing all the work that's been done in the other areas, right? It can be as simple as someone who is rude when they answer the phone <laughs> for a client or something. So um, in the case of the label, that put me on a big quest because how do you tell the story of this new vineyard that no one's heard of, that no one knows the region, nobody cares, nobody knows the winemakers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought, wow, that's like, if you go into a new field, your CV is very important. Once you're established and you have contacts, et cetera, maybe someone will double check some information on LinkedIn, but ultimately, when you're new, it's going to have a very different weight. So I thought the wine is going to have to present itself to someone on a wine shop or somewhere that if they, if it's a simplistic label or something that looks traditional or something that looks like a carbon copy of something that's already out there, it's not going to send the right message, especially coming from a region that was known more for cheap and cheery imitation of which is supposed to be a cheap and cheery imitation of a Chateau Neuf du Pape. And suddenly the prices and the style and the ageability and all those things, you know, will send very contradictory information to the consumer, sort of do not compute. And so we have to have a label that is our CV. What is the CV of a wine? And that got me onto that whole question of, of fine wine and, and how do you represent in metaphorical or allegorical form all the elements that have to come together to elevate something from an anybody to a somebody, right? And uh, that meant for me, how do I represent 
the history, the geology, the intent, the people, all the key elements. And I made a big Excel spreadsheet with all the things I wanted to try to say about- It's your research part. It was a very <laughs> nerdy research part, one of the many. And then I decided to try to represent that in allegorical form. How would I do that? Well, why don't I look at how the great painters have solved for that in the past? Uh, since they have many more centuries of experience than I ever would. So with my knowledge of art history and research, I began a huge file color-coded with, you know, <laughs> very nerdy, um, of all the ways of representing these things that I could com come across. Now, don't forget, this was before the internet was what it is today. And so I couldn't just Google up um, medieval hedgehog to tell the story <laughs> of how the hedgehogs roll around in the vineyards and pick up little grapes on their back and wallow back to their families at harvest and all these fun things that happen. You know, I bet you haven't found your hedgehog uh, in the label yet, but it's full of symbols like that. Anyway, um, I actually had to go to these medieval... Um, destinations like the Cluny Museum in Paris okay. or or the Abbey de Cluny in that is in the south or uh, the cloisters in uh, New York etc on a hunt for books that were references or you know of illuminations of, okay uh, yeah anything thematically related to medieval iconography and I was lucky that a, a good friend of mine um, from high school had ended up uh, in the medieval department at the Metropolitan Museum of New York uh, it helps. <laughs> and, and was able to go through some archives there and uh, and send me some references etc so it took me absolutely forever um, looks harder than just doing the wine <laughs> It was one of the many impossibly difficult things that we dealt with, um, time-consuming, ungrateful, and that most people will never understand or appreciate um, in their full detail. But yeah, it's just a label. It's satisfying it, yeah. intellectually, at least, um, and on principle, to to those of us in the family that wanted to just uh, make sure things made sense and were done right. Okay, it's beautifully done. It's beautifully done. And the impression it gives, it, it's very, uh, it's challenging. And at the same time, it makes you think even before you're, 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 you're drinking the wine, basically, you're just looking at the, at, the, at the label. There's so many questions coming up. And uh, but if this was the purpose, then it reached the purpose completely. I think it might be challenging and thought-provoking to someone like you for the very reason that you're the kind of person who likes to, think, notice, care, um, and other people. I just wanted to have many layers of read so that people who just wanted to understand what's the name of this thing, you know, Chêne Bleu and the picture of a blue oak tree and simple enough words in France that, you know, in French that someone from anywhere could basically relate to at least understand the bleu part. Um, and there's a real Chêne Bleu. There's a real Chandler. There's a real Chandler that was named after, which we can uh, talk about. But as you go deeper and deeper into it, you start noticing that there's a lot of 
deliberate thought in the composition, in, in, in where exactly the characters are placed and who's doing what. And there's maybe, I don't know, 50 different references there that are from very pragmatic things all the way to very abstract references to, for example, a treatise by Cicero called The Dream of Scipio uh, with a whole narrative around the fact that Scipio had to to choose between luxury and virtue, in this case, represented by a peacock and a dove, um, inspired as well by a painting at the um, British Library, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I'm happy to geek out anytime <laughs> on that stuff because I enjoy it very much, right. but it's not for the faint of heart. If you just want to enjoy a nice bottle of rosé on a, on a hot summer day, you don't have to um, ask yourself yes. what all the symbolism represents. But if you do like to go deeper on things, then it's, there's a lot there. And hopefully every single thing corresponds to a reality at the place uh, or at least in our head, um, <laughs> or for why we've made these wines the way we have. The uh, uh, I can only invite the audience to 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 have a look at the uh, at the labels and go into them. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. In a couple of words, Chen Bleu. There's a real Chen Bleu. There's a real blue oak. This was a um, funny little anecdote which happened when we were trying to find a name for the wine. We looked. Uh, all sorts of things because historically the cop the property was called Domaine de la Verrière, which was a glass blowing workshop since uh, Alliot de Montvin in 1427 had changed the name from La Regardette because the, the existing buildings were from the ninth century, although there are traces of a Roman opium from a thousand years before that. And um, the principle was to find something that could represent not just the place, but the philosophy and everything of, of who we were and, and what we were trying to do. And at that point, we had tried to go to these agencies and they were really not giving us any interesting feedback visually or uh, in terms of the name, because the time value of money were very, very small client. And as much as they like these challenges, they had to pay their rent, pay attention to their big corporate clients. So we always were at the back of the bus. So we decided to go to our community of friends and family. And we sent an email to anybody that we knew was vaguely familiar with our project and offered a nice reward to anyone who could come up with a good name. And we had a brief. And amazingly, because perhaps we offered a very v valuable reward, it had four digits and it was nice and chunky. Uh, it focused their minds. We had hundreds and hundreds of suggestions that poured in from all over the world. And it was- Big family and friends. Well, People forwarded it to their cousin who worked in a branding <laughs> agency and uh, all that stuff. So um, we trolled through all of that. And the four of us had not managed to agree on anything at, to that point. And we had hoped that by choosing our top 10, we would then find at least one that 
overlapped between the four of us. So it was a uh, spent most most of of Saturday working on that together, and very frustratingly couldn't come up with anything we could agree on. And there were lovely suggestions, but they didn't resonate, or you couldn't use them in French or in English or something. There was always a reason not to work with them. So off we went. And later on that evening at sunset, I went down with my husband to the apiary where he was moving things around. And um, he came across this, um, this is, it's right at the foot of, the, of where this blue oak is that we had painted with, with copper sulfide in a drought um, to protect it. A wonderful tree surgeon that we had. It had made a sort of an art object that was very much art ephemer, uh, the co copper sulfite. Uh, how would you say that in English? Um, I guess you can't really ephemeral, say ephemeral yeah. art, uh, temporary art. Or... Temporary art. It was mm. the copper sulfide was supposed to wash away just like it did on the vines, but it was going to help it through this uh, difficult moment in its senescence. And um, I was looking up at this tree and thinking, wow, this would be a perfect metaphor for everything we're doing because it represents the vineyard because it's presiding over the vineyard and the forest and it has this regal, natural, imposing anatomy but also has not just representing the fact that we want to protect the history, the tradition, the, the specificity, the beauty of our site, but also by painting it with the copper sulfide, it brings out the natural architecture of that tree and, and it's sort of enhanced reality. It's almost like Photoshop for nature. <laughs> and it, uh, it, it really makes it pop. If you were to just drive by and there would be a tree without leaves on the side of the forest, you wouldn't even stop to look. But by the blue one, the blue one makes you marvel at this at this beautiful natural creation and so i thought well that's exactly what we're trying to do in the vineyard in the house is we're not trying to change the essence of what's there of its history of its reason for being but thanks to us it's getting a new purpose okay. and a much more sort of uh, technicolor okay. uh, experience so that is how it struck me and I, I just turned to him and said, well, why don't we call it uh, the Chêne Bleu? And he looked at me and he said, oh, absolutely. Cause he immediately understood yeah. all the metaphor. What a great idea. It's something that's quite unique to the property and it makes perfect sense. So we ran up to my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and suggested it to them. And they were like, oh my gosh, it was right there under our nose. We had <laughs> thought of that. What a perfect idea. Yeah. Done. And, you know, in 10 minutes, this process nice. that had been going on for about five years was completely resolved. Beautiful, beautiful story. The, before we go on talking to about the future, um, briefly, 
I know it's what you're doing is very complicated. It's very difficult. It's such a long process. So what is, what, what would you say the hardest part of your work is and, and what keeps you motivated day in mm. day out? Wow, such deep existential questions that are exactly the ones I cut my teeth on privately all the time. I don't think I've been asked uh, ever to, uh, to share that. Um, the, the difficulties are so numerous that probably most people would consider them not worth it you know, maybe not unsurmountable, but the cost of solving for everything in so many areas all at once is daunting. I think the only, the, the, the challenges of making wine are enormous and anyone who's had to turn around a vineyard, let alone look after an existing one, will have shared a very challenging experience. But And, and renovating the, the house at the same time was very charming, challenging as well. Uh, but all those things are the past. I think the hardest parts are always the difficulties that were not anticipated. Um, and for, psychologically, in my case, coming back on things that you've had, that you've done and you think are behind you. And we had a number of those in the construction and in, in the winemaking. Um, a, a simple example being the, um, the medieval staircase that we restored inside the, the oldest part, the ninth, well, the staircase is actually in the 13th century part, but we worked with some, with the local architect and things and they, they got a number of calculations wrong because as we learned in hindsight, as, uh, staircases can be extremely challenging and should always be done by specialists, especially in the case of restorations because you have different things you have to take into consideration. So um, they built a whole staircase out of stone and there were differences in the heights of the stairs and various things. And we had to make a very hard decision to actually smash the whole thing, start again, rebuild it in good this time with specialists, etc. Things like that were in some ways harder than the hard parts that you, that are 10 times harder, but that you know are going to be hard or yeah. expensive. So uh, that for me is, is, is difficult. And also um, being a shy person, I found it very difficult to bang on pots and pans and have to go out and say, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at what we're doing. Come see. These wines are amazing. Right? Because people who don't know you apply a natural discount factor and assume that you're just a self-promoter. Um, so everyone wants to hide behind third-party validations of some person that they know and respect saying, look at her, try these wines, they're amazing, right? Um, <laughs> but you don't have that luxury because you discover quickly that many people in the critics world are relatively conservative especially when they've made a big name for themselves, they have a lot more to lose than to gain 
by recognizing something that's new, because if they get it wrong, that will be more consequential. But you got very good critics. Yes, but I'm very grateful to the critics who did um, rate the wines early on, but I uh, won't make names, but in several cases, uh, people who we thought could or should have been excited about trying a new wine wouldn't even try them because okay. they were from a famous appellation and they were only going to try the tried and true. Ooh. Even though those same people in an earlier part of their career had made their names by promoting new appellations that were slightly undervalued, etc. cetera, uh, they, by the time they achieved a certain notoriety, they were spending a lot more time at the Bordeaux Primeur and all the usual suspects. And so they didn't have the bandwidth to right. look at new new projects. Um, the same was true for importers. Um, many of the people that in theory should have gravitated to wines like ours were in some cases very upfront about saying, listen, I, I made my reputation on finding wines like yours, but now I have a lot of wine and the time value of money to establish a new wine in the market when there are already so many and so many are already in my portfolio that is the work I did 20 years ago is not useful to me. You, you must go to some new people in the field. And the new people don't have yet the reputation, the gravitas to put the bottle in the hands of a top sommelier or a, a top mm. critic and say, you have to try this. That's a huge dilemma. So that was uh, something that I hadn't known about beforehand. Um, and that took a long time to unravel that vicious circle. Um, but um, fortunately, some things have conspired to make that work easier for new people coming in now. I think when I arrived in the wine world to present these wines, the Appalachian systems were still very much set in stone in countries like France, so that if you were outside of an Appalachian or in a lesser known Appalachian, the discount factor that people expected in terms of quality and price um, was greater. And I think in the last 20 or 30 years, the number of wineries, even in traditional, shall we say, you know, old world markets, although I'd love to have a little debate about what's old world and what's new world, that should be fun, but um, was uh, that conservatism has been chipped away at systematically, not just by us, but others that have demanded some attention to be taken seriously, to be considered for a seat at the table, a bit like you've seen with diversity in many areas now, where there's now a bit of a, an expectation that if you want to have a well-represented board, et cetera, there, there are some people invited there that didn't all go to Eaton together 20 years ago, right? And so I think that's happening. And it's part of a bigger situation that's happened in the food world as well with the deformalization, decentralization of fine dining, you know, chefs in Denmark 
foraging for ants yeah. in their backyard and being best restaurant in the world, uh, etc. I think that that philosophy has extended a little bit or is in the process of, of permeating for the first time the wine world. And there is more of a place for people to accept access to the role. How do you keep motivated? Because it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very difficult, very tiring... It's a marathon uh, and it's a sprint a, yeah. at the same time. <laughs> and you have to be everywhere all the time for everybody in the vineyard, you know, at the winery, on the other side of the world, doing a wine dinner, all that stuff. Now that, of course, has changed, but perhaps temporarily. Um, and so uh, I'd say that a lot of it is not... Being. And and I and I mean that quite literally. Uh, I think um, in the other in the previous years when our son was younger and needed everything, um, there was a lot of working. You know, from until two or three in the morning, and then still getting up for the school run. I'm sure I'll pay for all that uh, in my older years. Um, a lot of. Um, a lot of anxiety um, came through and, you know, even just dreams, all the classic anxiety dreams, rejection, um, uh, all the things that, that people have when they're facing challenges that are bigger than their ability to solve for. Um, a lot of um, self-doubt, I'd say that um, not operating on the traditional circuits brings wonderful existential rewards of freedom and uh, designing your destiny, but the cost of that freedom is um, not having, not knowing what address to put into the GPS and really challenging yourself to how, how to, how to scale your mountain, not knowing where to start and where to, where to go. And, and that feeling of being lost and un, unsure where to put your next foot, um, not having, enough resources to do all the things that you know would be so beneficial and having to make difficult decisions of either or, um, or today versus tomorrow, all of those things. So I would imagine that a lot of those things are in common with any entrepreneurs. The only difference is that in the wine world, things take so long and um, are so consequential and making the wrong decision of a variety that you plant is something that's a 20 year mistake and hard to remedy. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that experientially, it's always been an enjoyable process. I think a lot of it has been very anxiety ridden, but existentially, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I feel like I won the lottery. I feel like I've had the most exciting unusual, bumpy, but satisfactory journey uh, to date. And I'm, I get my motivation out of seeing the long-term rewards, just like raising a child. The experience can be very stressful in the day-to-day, -day, uh, whether it's financially um, and, you know, experientially of, you know, all the problems that you would deal with. But then you have you're playing the long game and you often don't get uh, the return on your investment of your values, of your, 
attentions until maybe 20 years later. And I'd say that that is probably very similar when you embark on a project like okay. this one. Okay. Would you see yourself going back to your former life? You know, when you were international affairs and investment banking and think tanks and all these high and mighty. Would you see would, yourself back there? I would now? say the, the first reflex is no, because <laughs> I love what I do so much. But the reality is that having taken this step back to be a rookie and eat my humble pie and <laughs> learn from the beginning, this completely new world, ironically, now I feel myself reconnecting back in with a lot of the things that I had learned and the experience I had had and bringing them back into the wine world in places where I believe they're complementary to what the wine world does so well. And uh, what I mean is, the think tank work, the bringing people around the table from different backgrounds and kind of forcing them to, to talk to each other, to listen to each other. Um, I think that's the only way to go forward. I think that the, in order to make a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts, you have to create forums where so-called experts have to listen and have to be put on the thought on the spot for fresh thinking. Mm. And that's why I believe in the roundtable formats for the think tanks, because uh, otherwise you get a bunch of talking heads who are to some extent recycling a PowerPoint or re regurgitating thoughts they've already had, maybe in a slightly different sauce. Uh, whereas the roundtable format um, is an equalizer and forces people to create new thought. And that is the only way we're the pipeline for the wine world. Yeah. As you were talking further uh, on, the, on the work of the think tank that you're doing, um, let's talk about the future, because there's a lot of challenges that are coming up in the future, especially in the world of wine. There's women in wine, there's climate change, there's the environment. What, what do you see, what do you think the, the major challenges are for in the future? Originally put my thinking cap to that in 2017, excuse me, when we were hosting the 10th anniversary of our first vintage and figuring out what was the right way to have that milestone um, and use it uh, in an intelligent way. And I know a lot of people have fancy parties or um, celebrations of various kinds. And we thought, well, you know, it's nice to take stock and to have a moment to see the forest instead of the trees of what we've, you know, been dealing with. But first of all, it will be hard to have our own perspective on whether the wine world thinks that we're doing a good job. And, and if so, in what ways? You know, you always have that when you're at a career crossroads. They always recommend that you ask 10 people who know you well 
what they think you're good at or something. So it's the same principle, but for your, for your wine. Um, and it's always a valuable exercise. But the part of it was, okay, well, it's gratifying to think that we have been able to add our little discourse or certainly start to um, be part of the constellation of wines in the world that, that matter and that people know about and care about. It's a long journey, but we've certainly gotten our first, you know, um, nail in the <laughs> climbing of the wall. Uh, the harder part is how do you make sure that you set your sights on the right new goals for the next 10 years? And the minute you sit down to do that, consciously, if you don't yourself question, you'll probably just keep bumbling along as you have. Um, is to really deconstruct what you're doing right and you want to keep, what you want to change and improve. But it opens up Pandora's box of big questions. Where is the world going? Um, Where's tech going? Where's the future of, of the markets and of uh, society, culture, uh, global warming, you know, all these giant levers that are going to have a direct bearing on the future of the wine world, the future of gastronomy, you know, all of these things, we identified about eight different areas that were going to affect uh, the collective future of the fine wine world and therefore of us within it. And then we thought, hmm, this is way above our pay grade. Um, there is no way that at the top of our little mountain here in France, we can figure this out. And that's where I thought, okay, at the think tank, when we came across these big challenges, we pulled together all the right people, all the right topics, and let's do this. I think there must be a think tank in the wine world that does it. And I looked around and there wasn't, which was startling. And many institutions do a little bit of things like that, but it's not their main mandate. If you look at the Institute of Masters of Wine or you know, pretty much anyone you can think of, they all have other main goals. And this is a peripheral at the periphery of what they think about. So that's how we created our first think tank. And what came out of it was what eventually led to the creation of the Arani Global Institute for the Future of Wine One, which is that, whoa, this is not a one-shot deal. This is a global challenge. And we have to bring in a process to really work this out. So the biggest challenges apart from the from global warming that you mentioned, the sustainability, um, women in wine, I feel is coming along very well, um, surprisingly well. What a difference between when I started 25 years ago and now. Um, I think the wine world is going to get quite blindsided by what's happening in the cannabis world. Okay. I think we're not understanding the magnitude of the challenge. Now, whether that will really make big inroads into fine wine world has yet to be seen. In what sense? But um, uh, the... Um, no, thank you. Uh, the The fine wine world is now um, a little bit set in its ways, and I think it's quite. There's a, a certain smugness that is translated 
into the fact that they pride themselves on the fact that nothing ever changes and they've been doing the same thing for 300 years. And I think complacency? that is complacency that comes from having established yourself as a big fish in a little pool. Uh, it's so comfortable and uh, tempting to define the rules in a way that comfort you in the importance of what you do. And uh, I would consider that very similar to what you've seen with Swiss watches and things like that, where they were, you know, making better watches than everybody around them. And therefore they could pat themselves on their backs. And I can say that because my great grandfather was a, a watchmaker, uh, the border between Switzerland and France. So we have a lot of knowledge of that thing in the family. Um, but um, Nicola Hayek came along, created Swatch, and kind of changed the well, there's rule that, of the game. But there's, but there's cell phones, you know. This, this is the real disruption. Yeah. Things yeah. that come from yeah, true. Now, that yes. are not in the, in the parameters. The cell phones, you know, that is the disruption okay. that knocks people off their perch. And when I look at how quickly the cannabis business has made inroads in the US, for example, they have low margins, they have, I mean, big margins, low production costs, they have appropriated the word green, for example, mm -hmm. did you know that I picked up a magazine, at the airport, it said green entrepreneur, I thought, Oh, perfect sustainability, this is gonna <laughs> be just right for me. It was all about uh, the cannabis business. Uh, they have been cherry picking the best people. They've been cherry picking the best practices. Uh, have you been to these designer cannabis stores in um, California, for example? They've taken all the iconography from the high-end wine shops, um, the wood paneling, the little lights, you know, displaying specific cuvées. Okay. They have single, uh, single plot cannabis with smoking notes by top critics and all the things that okay. took us so long to develop as a as a as an industry to make it easier for consumers to navigate the world of fine wine in five years they have caught up and are now surpassing us in terms of understanding and listening much more to consumers than we do and creating accessories so that if you are a lady who lunches, you'll have um, suitably chic um, container for your cannabis. <laughs> you have a matchy-matchy cell phone cover to go say something about you, a statement about who you are and what's important to you, etc. cetera. Um, so they actually have more tools in their toolkit uh, to tailor make the experience to the The, the demographic that they're marketing to, they're much more uh, savvy uh, in every way. And I am stunned by how quickly they are transforming their visibility and financial success into successful lobbying in Washington and elsewhere. Okay. Uh, so I think it's a green tsunami <laughs> going to take a lot of attention away from from the wine world uh, and if they manage to 
change the laws the way they already have, we're going to have a very strange moment where cannabis is going to be making all sorts of inroads uh, in, in regulations so that they can be more readily accessible to the mass market of the middle class and the older people, etc. Just at the time where the anti-alcohol lobby is gaining yes. strength and momentum and is lobbying for things like white labeling, like, uh, you know, treating us like cigarettes and all that stuff, just because one person may have died of alcoholism, then every single other person in the whole world who enjoys wine, whether it's fine or not, whether they drink a lot or not, will have the gates shut, okay. et cetera. So I think we're, we're heading for a perfect storm uh, on the cannabis front. Um, so it's like an existential, it's, it's a surviving time, in, in fact. Not yet, but if, but we could be. if we don't think fast and act together, uh, if we continue to use your, our energies to obfuscate information from consumers in terms of ingredients in wine, chemicals that are being used in the vineyard, all that legislation that we have lobbied, uh, well, when I say we, obviously I'm not represented by the people who do the lobbying because um, uh, historically the big, the big companies and the agro-industrial groups have lobbied to, to maintain a lot of uh, access to all sorts of glyphosate and other things uh, just at a time when all the consumers in the whole entire world are asking for that stuff to be repealed. So we are not um, in the direction of our times and we are slow on communication, social media, all that stuff. We're fragmented. We don't associate easily and readily with our neighbors to solve problems. We tend to spend much too much energy on small competitive things to try to gain a few basis points of, uh, you know, a bit more shelf space. And, and meanwhile, it's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And I don't want to be <laughs> overly dramatic because of course, that's, there are many aspects of the fine wine world that are fantastic. And it is the second oldest profession in the world. So there's a good chance that it will be around uh, forever. But I don't think that we have fully taken on the bigger challenges that are coming our way and our discourse is still stuck in, you know, in, in, in issues that are, that were true 10 years ago, uh, but are not reflective of the ones for the next 10 years. So you're going to have plenty on your plate at Chambleu, La Verrière, and also at Arini. Uh, before we end the, uh, the interview, Um, we have the uh, the people questionnaire. Um, are you are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. So here we go. What is your favorite word? Thank you. Okay. What is your least favorite word? Impossible. Okay. What is your favorite virtue? Generosity of spirit. Okay. What is your favorite quality in a man? Ability to listen. What is your favorite quality in a woman? Compassion. What wine would you use to describe yourself? Riesling. Very approachable, uh, but also 
with complexity and the follow through as it ages and um, develops many nuances. Okay. What is your favorite curse word? Specifically don't like curse words and not for the reasons you think, but because <laughs> they often distract from what somebody is trying to say. So I like the word nincompoop because as a child, I always wondered what the etymology of that word was because it had such a strange sound. So when there's a traffic block or something like that and you're late, you say nincompoop. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? A table. Ah, <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? The sound of my alarm clock. Okay. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> what plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? A ladybug. Okay. Only Now. present in places that have uh, pure air and no chemicals. And it's always a symbol of spring and of uh, nature starting up again. Now the last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm sending you back because you haven't finished all your work. <laughs> Nicole Rollet, thank you very much. What a pleasure to be with you, Antoine. And I'm so in awe of how you have created a forum for thoughtful exchanges in a world where everyone is forcing you to go faster. And if you're not on TikTok and you're not doing things in a millisecond, uh, because a minute is already too much time, uh, you are wasting people's time and you are reminding us all that the important things in life take time and take attention. And you're the grandmaster of that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.